Hello and welcome to From Paper to Podium, the new podcast from Science and Sport. I'm Charlie Webster and I'm with Professor James Morton, my co-host. As Science and Sport is the world's leading endurance nutrition brand, they're well connected with some of the world's greatest athletes and sports scientists. So this podcast is designed to let you in on the conversations they have about performance and nutrition. This episode is focusing on hydration. So we've invited Chris Froome OBE on the podcast to hear how he fueled and hydrated his four Tour de France wins and Dr. Lewis James, a senior lecturer at Loughborough University and expert on hydration. First up, let's hear from Chris Froome. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. We're so glad to have you. Um, so the first thing I want to ask you is tell us about today because I can imagine you've been on some long ride because um, you're up in the Alps at the moment, aren't you, training? Yeah, 100%. Thanks for thanks for having me on. But um, yeah, today we we did a pretty solid session. We're, um, we're in the foothills of the Alps, uh, not far from Annecy. Um, dreadful place, just, just horrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, it's lovely up here. Um, lovely up here. We did about a five and a half hour session today, looking at I think it was stage eight of the Tour de France, doing the final few climbs of stage eight of the Tour de France, and um, yeah, seeing what we're up against. Really, you know, you said seeing what we're up against. You've you've won it four times. So how how well do you know it, and how different does it change? If that makes sense, the fact that you're there seeing what it what it's dishing out for you. Yeah, so I mean, every every year the route changes. They throw different sort of uh, different parkours at us every year, and um, that's that's part of the preparation. Really, is to get get around and probably pick out three, four key stages that logistically make sense and would be important to go and see before the race actually kicks off. So. That's that's what we're busy doing now, and also using it as a bit of a time to spend spend some time together as a group with uh, with most of most of the Tour de France group, and just make sure everyone's in a, a bit of a bubble at the moment, especially with COVID and everything that's going on, and keeping us uh, keeping ourselves uh, safe and uh, also on the right track in terms of training and nutrition and everything else. Yeah, and I can imagine mentally as well. So I'll just explain that as we're recording this episode, we're about two weeks before the start of the Tour de France. And as I mentioned, you've won it four times. Before we kind of go to now, I'd love to take you back a little bit. And and could you kind of think back to 2013 when you first won it and describe what it feels like? <laughs> it was, yeah, I mean, amazing feeling. Absolutely amazing feeling. It's been a while since I've sort of revisited that in my mind. But um especially sort of growing up through the ranks of of professional cycling to get to the point where you can actually take on the Tour de France for the first time and you're actually thinking okay I'm going into the race this year to try and win it and then to actually have everything go to plan and 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 come roll into Paris in the yellow jersey it, it was just just an incredible experience and something um something you can't really I guess describe it's something you have to sort of experience for yourself just as an athlete as a professional cyclist just what a sense of sort of achievement it feels like something that me and James won't be experiencing <laughs> <laughs> but we can try and hear it through your words <laughs> um and then let's bring it back to now because we know that you you haven't raced the tour since your crash in 2019 what does the tour mean to you now like you just tried to describe what it felt like when you crossed and, and I mean, we all saw it, and we can only just imagine it. But what does it mean to you now? It's 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 amazing because I mean, it, it it's meant so much to me as a race. Obviously, 
And now it's taken on a whole different meaning for me. I mean, two years on from from the horrific crash that I had, I mean, I, I broke a whole load of bones in my body. But to be going, basically, hopefully lining up for the Tour de France now, this marks basically the end of my rehab journey, if you like, coming back from a double fractured femur, uh, fractured fractured elbow, fractured vertebra, fractured had a fracture in my neck, um, damaged damaged lungs, uh, fractured sternum, broken ribs. I mean, it was it was a nasty crash. Um, so I mean, to be to be here basically two years two years on from that crash, I, I just can't wait to get into the race now. Can't wait to get into the race. Can't wait to get get going i mean i won't be there fighting for the win like like i was previously but this this already marks a a huge milestone for me just to be back in the tour de france again i mean it's quite remarkable really chris that you've you're even talking to us about it now yeah i mean uh yeah it's it's definitely um it's it hasn't been easy the last couple of years i mean it's been a it's been a big slog and a lot of a lot of tough moments, um, sort of behind the scenes, grinding just to get back into into this position where I'm talking about going to the Tour de France again. But um, I'm so glad that I I did persevere and I did push on, and that I didn't just throw in the towel uh, when I had the crash and walk away from the sport. That that wasn't the way I wanted to go out, and um, I I feel as if I've I've still got a lot more to give, and uh, hopefully hopefully we'll see that in the in the years to come. Chris, you and I obviously know each other very well from working together for five years or so. Um, so I know how much of a winner you are deep down. And you just said that you won't be competitive this year. But in many ways, getting on the start line, does that is that a win to you already? Just racing the Tour de France this year? Very much so. Very much so. I mean, I, I, it, was, it was clear I, I wasn't anywhere near ready last year, um, one year on from my crash. But I think I'm in a much better place now, and I mean, it, it feels feels like a victory for me just just talking about this about about going to the Tour de France this year. I mean, um, of course, there'll be a lot of uh, naysayers out there who are basically just comparing comparing me to my my previous self before the crash, and that's fine. I mean, I I, I get it. That's it's natural for people to to make that comparison. But for me personally, I'm I'm delighted. I mean, I, I know it's a it's it's been an incredible journey. It's been an incredible process these last two years. Um, I've learned a lot. I've been through some pretty dark moments. Uh, so just to be on that that start line is 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 a big win already. Chris, you said about the comparison, and and I think how hard is it for you? You said that you're not doing that, and the naysayers might do that. But how hard is it being for you to not do that? Because I think somebody who's of your personality, that's an elite athlete. I think all of us have a tendency to do that where we have a comparison and compare ourselves to what we expect we should be. 100%, 100%. I mean, if anything, I mean, sure, there, there are moments where it's like, I, I can see that now's the moment the race is kicking off, that it, it's going. And there are times that I, I literally just can't follow. Physically, I, I, I'm just not at that level yet to be there with the guys at the very front. And there'll be a moment of frustration where I'm like, I compare myself to where I was previously. And I, I know I, I could have done that previously, but very quickly, I remember obviously the journey I've been on these last two years and just, just to be in this point racing at the highest level of professional cycling again, 
I mean, it's it's going to come. Uh, I haven't given up hope in any way whatsoever that that I can still get back and, and try and win the Tour de France again. Um, but this is this is going to be one of those stepping stones. At least I'm back in the race now, uh, whereas this time last year I, I wasn't doing that. So out of the seven Grand Tours you've won, is there any that means the most to you? Now you've had that time to reflect, and if so, why? I think I think there's nothing that compares to to the first winning the first Tour de France. Um, winning winning the first Tour de France is really it, it's such a it's such a, a landmark, I guess, as a professional cyclist. Because I mean, the Tour de France really is just the holy grail of, of of our sport, and to win that, to win that, that's something no one can ever take away from you. I think I think that first one for me was 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 by far the most most emotional. There are there are other ones that are special to me in terms of m- most sort of closely fought and hardest fought, and Giro d'Italia comes to mind as <laughs> yeah. as, as as the Grand Tour that I I never. Th- realistically thought I'd win um every every race has its own story and uh, that's that's what's so unique about cycling myself and James were talking weren't we James about that 2018 that Giro d'Italia um James were you on that yeah yeah I first started working with Chris in 2015 that was my first Tour de France and Chris is absolutely right because when I reflect back on my time with Chris and some of the guys every race tells its own story Every race has its own rivals. There's its own narrative going through the race. I don't know about for me, but I can still remember half of the team meetings from different races and all of the things that we used to discuss and go through. Going back to the to Tour de France, actually, before we get into the Giro, in 2015, what I loved about that race was that Chris was absolutely flying, and but then he got a chest infection with about three or four stages to go. And it would have been very easy to to fall off the race basically and lose the race. And I remember on the last day, which was Alpe d'Huez, Chris, if you remember, and we were racing against a, a cyclist called Naro Quintana from Movistar. And he pretty much attacked for me on that day. And we hung in for dear life and, and won the race by, I think it was about 30 seconds or so in the end, Chris, wasn't it? But that's really when I got an insight into your character of never give up and fight till the very last second of when you cross the finish line. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. That was that was definitely one of the sort of hardest fought tour titles that I that I won. I mean, everything was going perfectly up until the last few days, and I think after the second rest day, I just started feeling that sort of the tickling back of the throat. A couple of days later, it was into the chest, and it was it was like, oh, we've still got some big stages coming up <laughs> yeah. here, and I've uh, uh, I'm I'm hanging on by a thread now. I mean, I'm 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 asthmatic as it is, so that that just sort of exacerbated things and um I, I can remember being actually standing on the start line of that day that you mentioned i think it was stage i think it was stage 20 it was actually. Stage it was 20 yeah, yeah. Stage. i can remember standing on the start line and quintana standing right next to me and i was trying so hard not to cough that i had like this bur- burning itch in my sort of in my in my throat that i i, I just want to cough and clear and I was trying so hard not to show any sign of weakness or anything. <laughs> I just could, I, I couldn't wait for the race to start so I could go and have a cough and in peace. Um. <laughs> Chris, when me and James were uh, just having a chat, we always have a bit of a chat beforehand. And and James said, "You are one of the most resilient, mentally tough athletes on the planet." And he started talking about almost like 
Michael Jordan-esque in the cycling world. How much do you think your mental toughness, if that's the right word, has contributed to where you are? Well, that's a, that's a huge compliment. Thanks, James. <laughs> um, <laughs> he genuinely did say that, I promise. <laughs> I mean, um, I don't really know where where I've got that from. I, I, I don't know if it's just my upbringing or what it was, but I, I mean, I, I do have this, I do, a lot of people have told me that I've got this, this resilience of just never, never giving up, even in sort of really difficult situations or dark moments um I, I can always try and try and see the light at the end of the tunnel and um yeah I, I don't know if that's something you can you can necessarily train or something you're born with or just a just a mentality I guess but I I genuinely try to look at things in in a really positive light and try and make the the best out of situations that aren't going necessarily my way well I, th- I think that's the the great thing about cycling as a sport charlie i mean when i f- first worked in cycling it was completely new to me so i had to learn the sport learn the culture learn the language learn the whole narrative and what i quickly learned was that you're never really out of the race and never ever give up because one day can completely change the whole race and you mentioned before about the giro d'italia in 2018 and that was probably, I'm sure Chris would agree, one of the most iconic stages in, in cycling now because he was over three minutes um, off the lead with pretty much one day to go. And Chris being Chris woke up in the morning and going, right, we're going to do it today. We're going to, we'd had a big meeting the day before. So all the staff was all behind it. We'd got all the tactics and fueling and everything all together. And Chris woke up, right, today's the day we're going to do it. And that was kind of, to put it into a football scenario, it's kind of like the Liverpool AC Milan Champions League final in 2005, getting beat 3-0 at half-time, but then coming back to win the Champions League. That's what that day was like. And again, that that for me, that race really summed up Chris's um, character. I was going to ask Chris, actually, when you look back on that time, 2017-2018, that was your third Grand Tour in a row after the Tour of Wealth to Double and then the Giro the next year. And often we talk about athletes being in a state of flow where things are just happening. They're totally immersed in it, but they can't explain why things are happening. It's just so engrossed in the task. When you look back at that time, was that kind of like a flow period for you that you were just so dominant and things were just happening naturally, if you like? Despite all the hard work, did it feel like it was just natural racing and performance? Yeah, very much so. It's strange because, I I mean, I look at it now and and see how hard I have to work basically to to get ready for a grand tour and I know I'm not even close to to being ready to to winning winning the Tour de France again but it is just incredible when you're in that shape where you almost feel as if no one can touch you um it was it was actually Bobby Julik uh, my old coach who had this analogy of when you've got a ship that's sailing it's moving it's got the momentum it's it's got the wind in its sails you don't actually need to do much with it. It's it's just sailing on its own. Uh, it, every now and then you need to touch the rudder and and just steer it a little bit, but the momentum it's it, it's it's moving and it, that's what it feels like. It, you're almost in autopilot at that point, and you're just going from from one goal to another goal, and it just it almost feels easy. Uh, obviously, it's it's not easy at the time. You're you're training extremely hard and pushing everything to the limit, but at, at the same time, looking back on it, it seems as if it was easy is that because 
everything underneath though, you'd built that foundation where everything, you'd worked on everything with your mentality, your nutrition, fitness, every, every single thing then comes together to make it feel like that. 100%. I, I think it's a combination of so many things coming together. I mean, it's it's you've just got, um, if you break down all the elements of performance, you've just got so many things underneath that. Uh, as you said, from from your equipment to your, your physical condition to your mentality to uh, everything. I mean, um, there's just so many aspects that make that up to the support crew around you your your teammates on the road as well and when when you're in that sort of twilight when you've when you've got everything that's been everything's been checked off the list everything's sort of done to the the best standard possible that's that's when you start to get success i think that leads us nicely to the role of nutrition how would you describe the impact of nutrition in supporting your performances like we just talked about the various different elements coming together it's it's massive. It's massive. I think if you don't have a very good understanding of nutrition as as a professional athlete, you're already uh, starting a step behind the other athletes. I mean, it, it just plays such a massive role. Especially, you got to think about it. We're we're on the road at an event like the Tour de France. We're on the road some days up to sort of six, seven hours a day sometimes. Um, and if you haven't if you don't go into that stage with a, a, a clear plan and a strategy that, that you can execute and, and stick to and, and actually de- have delivered, obviously logistically it's quite difficult as well on a seven-hour stage of just have where to receive the right foods at the right times. And it, there's a whole plan and strategy that needs to go into that. And if you, if you don't have that and you're just going off, I guess, feel, you've, you've lost before you've even started. Is there any moments now when you look back and you you can see when it's all gone right in terms of the nutrition and then when you said you just know the moments where there's mistakes being made, which I think everybody everybody does. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I still make mistakes. Um, it's, I'm, I'm still learning. <laughs> what? Even after, <laughs> yeah, even after racing, racing for 12 years or whatever it is. Um, it's something that's always evolving, I think. I don't think there's one perfect answer. What would work for you today might not work for you tomorrow. Um, a very different stage, very different conditions, different weather, um, different circumstances. The race could be faster, slower, you, and you have to sort of know how to adjust your fueling on, on the fly, if you like. It sounds ridiculous, but a race like the Tour de France, you actually have to watch your calorie intake. You can't just eat at every opportunity. Otherwise, you're just going to be putting on weight through the race and you're going to get to the last week and you're going to be three kilos heavier than when, when you started, which which has happened to people. Uh, I mean, sometimes you've got nutritionists on the race and everyone's so so afraid of this, this sort of the phenomenon of, of, of bonking or blowing or whatever you want to call it, that everyone's like, yeah, carbs, carbs, carbs all the time. Uh, and you can actually go too too far and overeat almost, and you'll be you'll be picking up weight as as the race goes on. So I mean, it's it's a fine balance, and I mean, as I said, I, I still get that wrong. There are times I go into a race thinking, okay, today's not that hard. I can I can kind of back off slightly on the on the fueling, only for the race to to be full gas from the start and uh, something that's just completely out of your control, and you haven't really planned for that scenario. And you're left basically in, 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 in that zone of deficit. So, I mean, it, it does happen 
it does happen. And um, every year you see it in the Tour de France. There, there was many times when, when Chris and I perhaps um, maybe did get it wrong and we lost some seconds in certain stages, but then thankfully we pulled them back the next day and it was just, it's such an important part of winning or losing. You know what I like about both, when I've listened to both of you speak, you both use the word we, you know, as in we got it wrong and, and you're not kind of putting it on Chris James or where it's actually, I suppose, a lot of pressure of you, for you. And it might sound obvious, but I almost just presume, James, that you will know exactly what to do. Not at all, not at all. And and any time that there was an underperformance, as Chris, will, I'm sure, will testify, I used to blame myself because obviously then my plans are wrong. Um, so I, I think it was very much a, a team effort, and I'm sure Chris would, would agree with that, that the, the plans were done together. Um, hopefully they were executed together, but at times they were wrong, and, and I took responsibility for that. Because, Chris, how do you adapt to how you, say, feel and what you know you have to do? Because I think it's not as easy as to take... You said about sometimes you take it in too much because everybody's scared of bonking, but at the same time, there's that underfueling which we hear a lot about as well how do you make yourself do it when mentally you you might not want to um i mean you're obviously what's always in the back of your mind is that it's it's especially an event like the tour de france it's it's a three-week event and if you if you're overfueling that it's always in your mind that you you're going to be going into that last week heavier than that than that you want to be i mean cycling is such a such a power to weight sport that if if your weight does creep up by even a kilo, that could be hugely detrimental to you in, in that last week. So it's it's something you've really got to sort of balance quite quite carefully throughout the race. And uh, there will be days where you you overfuel, um, and there'll be days when you, where you underfuel, and you kind of you need to be able to make those uh, adjustments post race. Um, according to to how the day is actually unfolded, if it's if it has been a harder than expected day, or if and you've got away with it, or um, or it's actually been you fueled really hard for it, and it's actually been quite an easy day, you'd probably then go lighter after the race, for example. So it's it's something that's really dynamic, and I mean you can plan all you want, but you've got to actually be able to make those decisions as the race evolves as well. I just want to bring up, um, go back to the 2018 Giro d'Italia. I know we've spoken about it from a mentality point of view, but James said to me, um, see if you agree, that it was almost the most that you've ever eaten in that comeback. Do you think nutrition played a big part in that? Oh, massive, massive. I mean, um, there's no way I could have uh, executed that that kind of effort out on the road if I hadn't fueled the way I did. And from a fueling point of view, it did just look ridiculous. I mean, you looked at my my plate that morning at breakfast and it was literally a mountain of rice. I, I looked at it and I almost laughed. I was just like, I, I, I can't eat that. Like that's, I think it was something, something, I, I, I'd love to, love to go back and see what the figures were, James. Maybe you remember, but I remember something like, I don't know, six or 700 grams of rice. It literally looked like a whole, yeah, a mountain basically. Um, <laughs> And I can remember doing the first couple of hours of the race and being told, okay, you still need to fuel whatever, have many 50, 80 grams an hour for the first couple of hours. I can remember eating and just feeling like so bloated and so, so terrible, but I'm so glad I did as well because I got to the, the end of that stage and I was absolutely empty. So without, if I hadn't done that earlier in the morning, 
there's no way I would have I would have made made the full distance on my own like that. Yeah, no, I think you've you've said it correct there, Chris. It, often riders might start the race and feel heavy and bloated, but for sure when it gets to the last 10 20k most people are pretty thankful that they felt bloated to start with because that's what gets them through those last um few kilometers and and often produces the race winning moves as you know can you remember that what what it was james yeah i mean the the amount of carbohydrate that chris had between finishing stage 18 and stage finishing stage 19 was some of the highest that's ever been seen in the whole sports science literature it was up it was up over 18 grams of carbohydrate per kilogram body mass and i, I used to present give us some idea what that means because we've got the i've got a picture of like massive bag of rice from chris yeah well breakfast on that particular stage would have been um easily a large plate of rice so we're talking like a big mountain plate of rice pancakes fruit smoothies bananas on the on the bus on the way to the stage, there would have been lots of other carbohydrate snacks. We would have even started race fueling then, like rice cakes as well. Um, and then during the race itself, it was up to around 100 grams of carbohydrate per hour, which is, that's the upper limit of fueling on the bike. Um, and usually you would train a lot to do that in training. You practice that. And we didn't really practice that before that race because we were still trying to peak for the Tour de France, the next race. So the, so the Giro for us was almost like a bonus type race, Chris, wasn't it? 100%, yeah. <laughs> so it's no surprise that you felt bloated during the stage that day. God, I bet you look at some rise, Chris, and just like, oh, no, please. <laughs> um, <laughs> Chris, we wanted to also talk about hydration um, a bit with you as well. So how critical is that to your performance, especially, I mean, you're in the Alps at the moment. I can imagine it's been quite hot. How do you cope with hydration and how important do you think it is? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's another side of uh, nutrition that's equally as important. I mean, um, you can fuel all you want, but if you don't hydrate to the right right point, especially in, in summer temperatures where, where we're, we're racing the Tour de France and, and the Volta Espana as well in Spain in August, you can, you can get really, really, you dig yourself into a really big hole there if you don't get that right. Um, so, I mean, generally, I mean, temperatures above 30, 30 to 40 degrees um sometimes we're looking at four five bidons of uh half a liter each uh, 500 mils um an hour at times mixture of mixture of things you definitely want some electrolyte but i find too much for me personally um is, is a bit heavy on the gut sometimes so mi- mixture of water electrolyte and and definitely a bit of a, a carb drink as well at, at, at points as well is there any races that you look back where you know that well that it maybe was really significant or that it didn't work because of hydration? That's thankfully been one of my sort of strong points throughout my career is is dealing with basically managing the heat uh, really well. Um, I, I seem to go a lot better when when the conditions are really hot and um, I don't know if how much hydration plays a part in that, and I imagine that's that's probably key key to it as well is just just staying hydrated whereas put me in the cold and it's a whole different story i i just can't seem can't seem to work that one out yet but um yeah certainly in the heat drinking pretty much as much as you can get down as much as your stomach can as much as you feel as if you you can digest is is pretty much the only way to go yeah i think chris is is right we didn't never usually performed in the cold but let's not forget chris when he's on form is super super lean so racing in the cold 
isn't great for Chris at all. Whereas when racing in the heat, being super lean is great. Um, he's obviously got a high sweat rate and he's he's such an elite athlete that his body is um, so adapted to performing in the heat. The, the fitter you are, the more you sweat. The earlier you sweat, you regulate your core temperature better. So where you see some athletes really struggling in the heat when it was a nice sunny day outside, Chris would wake up with a nice smile on his face thinking today's the day. It's about the only thing that I can even get close to having in common with how incredible an athlete you are is the fact that I'm also good in the heat and I hate the cold, but that's about it. (laughs) And what about hydration after? Because I think that's something that, you know, we talk so much about the race, right, in terms of fuel and hydration, but less so afterwards. And I think that's a, a thing I reckon a lot of people make a mistake on in general is not hydrating afterwards. How important is that? Definitely. And definitely in stage racing, which is which is obviously my bread and butter is is being this the, the, the long races like the Tour de France, the Vuelta Espana. And hydrating afterwards, you can you can always get a rough guide just jumping on the scales after after you finish uh, an event. And I mean it will tell you straight away just I mean, there there are some days where you could lose up to sort of three kilos of, of body mass, body weight. I wish that was all fat, but uh yeah. I'd say a good ninety five percent of that is probably probably just uh, just fluid and uh, fluid that you're probably retaining before the event and that you're no longer retain retaining after afterwards. Um, but that that gives you a good guide, I think, getting on the scales at the end of end of a hot race, um, just to be able to see how much you've actually lost and um, how much hydrating you need to do after the race. Yeah, no, immediately after the stage, as soon as Chris and the guys would come in, the first thing we would do is weigh them, see how much fluid they've lost and, and intervene straight away. Because if, if we didn't get those fluids on within the first 30 to 60 minutes and we didn't rehydrate correctly, performance would suffer the next day. So rehydration was, was critical for performance. What's the key to that, James, just quickly? As in, like, what's the... What advice would you give to people what to do? Well, a, a very simple rule actually is to um, weigh yourself before and after exercise. And then the amount of weight that you've lost, multiply that by 1.5. And that gives you a rough estimate of how much fluid that you would need to consume. So if you've lost a kilo during exercise, then roughly you would replace that with one and a half liters of fluid. And Chris, we always finish by asking our guests any kind of motivational tips um, for their goals. So any, if you, if you think of like an everyday exerciser or across the board, what do you think is the most important bit of advice to help people keep track and achieve their goal? I'd say whatever exercise you're doing, whether it's going out for a run, a hike, a bike ride, or playing a, a ball sports or something have have a plan have a have a nutritional plan for your event for your exercise don't just go into it and be like okay I'll, I'll wait until i'm thirsty then i'll i'll have a drink or i'll wait until i'm hungry and i'll have some some something to eat to top up the the glycogen levels go into whatever it is that you're doing with a with a clear nutritional plan that 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 you know okay every hour i want to try and get x amount in that, that will basically help me sustain my level of performance through that event. And what about any cyclists out there or budding cyclists out there? Yeah, I mean, I'd say exactly the same thing. I mean, you just there are so many cyclists who go into a race, just just whack a bunch of 
bars in the back pocket and two bottles on the bike because the bike has two bottle cages and uh yeah off 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 you go but you you need to do better than that you need to have a have a strategy figure out if it's where where you're going to stop to top up your bottles figure out where you're going to take certain foods you obviously want to try and spike your um the amount of basically glucose in in your body towards the end of the event um you don't want to be doing that right at the start necessarily um so i'd always i'd always work on that theory of the longer you go the sort of the the more sustained you need to be earlier on and then going to your more simple sugars as you get close to the end to to get you to the finish line james speaking to chris i think we have to remember how remarkable it is that he's even speaking to us never mind the fact that he's competing or trying to compete back at that level it's incredible he actually survived that that horrendous crash. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable to see him back riding at world tour level. I mean, Chris mentioned that he won't be competitive at this year's Tour de France, but for someone who's spent his whole career winning, sometimes you can win without winning. And maybe this year's Tour de France will be an example of that for Chris. So I think everyone in the whole world of cycling and wider sport will be so pleased when they see him on the start line at this year's event. Do you think we'll see him back? to his best I mean I hate that because I I almost hate that I've asked that question because of that comparison thing well as I mentioned Charlie to you offline on numerous occasions if there's one athlete that I would um, that I would bet could get back to that level it is Chris because his mentality is is unreal I mean we, we did mention in the podcast and some people might raise their eyebrows about me comparing him to Michael Jordan. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> I dubbed you in a bit there. <laughs> well, when the Chicago Bulls were dominating the NBA, it was really Michael Jordan that was dominating the sport. And when Team Sky was dominating cycling, it was really Chris Froome that was dominating the sport. And and he, he raised everyone's standards around him, staff, riders. He brought everyone to a new level. And so, as I mentioned, if there's anyone that could get back to that level, without doubt, it's Chris Froome. I know we speak so much about trying to find those edges and those margins through nutrition and through training. But I think underlying that always is that mentality. What do you think it is about Chris then that's so special mentally? Well, I think probably a lot of it could be traced back to his upbringing as well, which we didn't really um, discuss. But as many people know, Chris spent a lot of his childhood in Kenya. So he has that love for the outdoors. He has that love for riding his bike. It's his real passion. And he mentioned that himself. He just he just loves riding his bike. And, and when you love something so much, more often than not, everything else just falls into place. We've discussed it numerous times now. His, his desire to win and his mentality and his love for the sport will see him through. Yeah. And uh, I'll throw it in then about this two-bottle thing. <laughs> which I feel just showed me up. Can you talk us through that a little bit? Because honestly, when I do that all the time, (laughs) oh, well, I've only got two bottle cages. So I just put two bottles on no matter how long my race is or my training. Yeah, I thought it was great actually, Charlie, because the question that we asked Chris at the end was what advice would you give? And that's he, (laughs) he went back to that point about having a plan. And just because there's only two bottle cages, it doesn't mean that that's all you need to have on your ride. When I was thinking about this, actually, I think there is a lot of similarities between the athletes that we've had who have been through the British Olympic system. So you think of the likes of Geraint, um, Adam Peaty, Paula Radcliffe, Chris Froome, 
Every one of them has all mentioned about having a plan to perform. And it did make me think about how good the British Olympic coaching system really is. I think it is one of the best in the world. And any athlete who's been through that system has been well coached on the real fundamentals of performance and especially planning for performance, which is key. Well, let's get some more science around hydration then and speak to Dr. Lewis James. He's a keen cyclist, but he's also done so much research into hydration. It's extremely well respected. Lewis, it's really great to have you on. We've just spoke to Chris Froome about fueling and hydration, especially during the Tour de France. And I know you spent the last 10 years studying the effects of hydration and performance. But I think maybe we should start at the very beginning almost. So can you just explain the role of water in our bodies? Uh, we're naturally around 70% water. Have I got that right? And what role does it play? And is there any truth in the eight glasses of water per day thing or two litres? Is that? Yeah, so... Um... Water is the single biggest component of the human body, as you said. So 70% is probably an overestimate for most of us. So you've, you've spoken to Chris Froome. He's probably about 70% water. But most of us mere mortals are more in the range kind of 55 to 60%. And it, and it really depends on how much adipose tissue you've got. So m- most of the body is mostly water, except for our fat tissue. Um, and that's about 10% water. So the more fat you've got, the less percentage water you're going to be. So somebody who uh, who has obesity, for example, could be as low as 45%. Uh, and actually, those with the highest water are, are, are babies. So they're around 75%. So when we're born, we're around 75% water, and then it declines as we, as we age. So should we be higher than when you said about the 40% range? Should we be aiming for Chris Froome-esque? <laughs> yeah, the, the, the lower your body fat, the higher your percentage water. So if you're an athlete who's very, very lean or an individual who's very, very lean, then you will naturally have a higher percentage body water. Um, so, yes, yeah, so our very lean athletes like Chris Froome, uh, probably in the single digits, I would imagine, for body fat percentage are, are going to be around 70 percent water just because they have less fat tissue. But what does that mean in terms of hydration, though? Uh, well, it doesn't necessarily mean mean anything because most of the things related to hydration are the absolute amount of water. So um, somebody might have 70% of their body being water. That might be about 40 litres for a, an athlete like like Chris, for example. Um, what, what matters is where it goes from that. So the change in that body water. So if he loses some body water or, or gains some body water, they, they could have performance or there could be performance and health consequences. And that's what matters really. And then what about the eight glasses of um, water a day? Is that yeah. two litres? That is, well, it's meant to be two litres. So, I it mean, how big, glasses, is, right? how big the glass? It's like how yeah, exactly. Is it, how big the glass? <laughs> not eight so, shot glasses. <laughs> not eight shot glasses, no. So, yeah, that's, that's on the understanding that a glass is about 250 millilitres of water. And if you have a cup of tea or something like that, that's about 250 mils. So, yeah. The, the recommendations that are out there are around two litres for, for females and about two and a half litres for males. Now, that is if somebody's not exercising at all. And of course, the thing that exercise does is it makes us sweat. And as soon as we sweat, we increase our loss of water on a daily basis. And then that increases our requirement for water on a daily basis. So m- most average individuals, two to two and a half litres is where we're looking. Now, that number actually does include food water and we often forget that 
So it's not necessarily that the water has to be drunk, it's the water has to be consumed. And if you think about something like pasta, for example, actually when you eat the pasta, it has quite a lot of water in it. Fruit, vegetables, soups, things like that, they all contribute water and it all counts. And what about the physiological changes then, especially exercising in the heat? Yeah, so I mean, exercising in the heat brings round kind of thermoregulatory um, stresses to the to the body and maintaining that body core temperature. So most people have a, a body temperature of something like 36 and a half to 37 and a half degrees um, Celsius. Now, when we exercise, we produce an awful lot of heat. So most of the energy that we expend during exercise is, is as heat, um, about 80%. And that has to be liberated taken away from from the body if if you don't take it away the body will get hotter um, and, and ultimately that that could have severe consequences and and has in some athlete scenarios actually so exercise increases our our body heat and we have to lose that the main one of the main ways that we do that is through producing sweat so we all know when we go to the gym we get a bead of sweat on and you know if you're running on a treadmill or or cycling on a bike you'll perhaps even start to see that drip onto the floor now, if it's dripping onto the floor, it's not actually any good. What we want is that sweat to be evaporating from, from the skin. And through the evaporation of that sweat, we can actually liberate heat from the body and cool ourselves down or prevent ourselves from getting hot. Ah, that's interesting. So what's it mean if it's dropping to the floor then? It's and not, it's not evaporating. Yeah, it's not doing anything. So it only plays a role when it evaporates. Um, and that's why if you think about uh, the types of environments we'll exercise in, when it's very, very humid, for example, uh, as it is in the tropics, you know, s- somewhere like Singapore, when you're exercising, you'll actually seem like you're sweating a lot more. You'll see a lot more sweat than if you were exercising in a desert environment. In a desert, there's a lot more space for uh, water in the air and a lot more of that water can evaporate. Whereas if you're in a very humid environment, you can't evaporate that water. Um, and, and that means that you you don't get that benefit of of sweat. I actually did the Singapore Marathon and I was hot and sweating before I even took one step. <laughs> I'm not joking. It was hard. Um, James, Chris spoke a lot, didn't he, about exercising in, in heat and hot temperatures? Yeah. Yeah. Now, well, Lewis, it's great to have you on board, by the way. So good to see you again. What I would say about hydration I think it's it's one of those areas of performance that can definitely impact performance, but we take it for granted. And I think a lot of athletes spend more time thinking about fueling as they do about hydration. And quite often they make a lot of mistakes on the hydration space because they think, oh, it's easy and I don't have to worry about it. They take it for granted. And before you know it, you get to the back end of the race and it's too late. The damage has already been done. I wanted to bring something up actually, Lewis, because... I think we talk about hydration a lot in the heat and it's so much more obvious. Um, So I'll just give an example of myself. I did um, an Ironman in Marrakesh and it was 40 degrees, ridiculously hot, but I was hydrated because I was so on it and I even carried water. I then did New York Marathon several years ago now and it was absolutely freezing. And I was telling James this story because I didn't drink at all, like hardly anything. And by the end of it, like I did a great time and was fine until I crossed the line and then I was wobbling all over the place and I didn't quite realize. And then I ended up getting picked out and put in a one of those tents and given water and salt and had a thing right around me. And it was because I hadn't drank anything during it. So how important is it we emphasize to hydrate even in the colder temperatures? Yeah, the effects on body hydration 
can be similar in in hot and cool environments actually and, and, and what we see is that exactly as you've described there when it's hot you're almost more on it and and therefore you're more likely to drink and therefore you've got more going in you might have more going out but you've also got more going in um, whereas if you're in a cooler environment perhaps you're you're, you're not going to have so much coming in um, one of the things that happens in a cold environment actually is our, our thirst sensation is blunted as well so we're, we're less thirsty um, and we've got less desire to drink now the negative effects of hydration or dehydration which is a, a, a loss of body water or a reduction in body water are more pronounced in the heat so we talked about the the temperature side of things earlier and that's the effect that heat has the other thing that heat does is it puts quite a big stress on the cardiovascular system and the one thing that dehydration does is it decreases the volume of your blood and if you've got less blood circulating in the body you'll see a more negative effect on the cardiovascular system and so your performance is probably more impaired by dehydration in in, in the heat than in cool environments but that doesn't mean you don't get dehydrated as you as yeah you've no i did so the only time i've been really dehydrated in the race is the cold temperature it's absolutely ridiculous and that's because of that thirst sensation like I was almost too cold, so I just didn't want to drink anything. Um, I was just going to pick up on the performance. I wonder if we could expand on that or the impact hydration has, because I think that's really important. Yeah, I mean, dehydration has been shown uh, over probably 70 to 100 years now to, to impact almost every aspect of human performance. Um, it, it just seems to impact it at different levels of dehydration. So you perhaps need a little bit more dehydration to be present to um, reduce your ability to jump or um, your ability to bench press than you do to reduce your ability to run or to cycle. Um, so endurance activities and also cognition, so ability to make you know decisions and um, reaction speed, those sort of things are, are impaired at slightly lower levels. Around the two percent mark is the is is the threshold number that's thrown around everywhere. Can you put that into context for the listeners, what we mean by 2% dehydration, 3% and so on? Yeah, so this is a, a percentage of your body weight that you lose through water or through sweat. Um, and so uh, let's say a 75 kilogram runner or football player, um, if they lost one and a half kilos over the course of their exercise that would be a two percent dehydration and that's a really um a, a typical thing to see actually uh, almost across the board in, in in many different sports um over 90 minutes of exercise m a lot of individuals voluntarily lose around two percent of their body weight um, typical sweat rates are somewhere in the region of one to two liters per hour um, and uh, if you're going to lose 2% of your body weight and you're 75 kilos, like I said, that's 1.5 kilos or 1.5 liters of sweat. So if you're losing one liter an hour and you don't drink anything and you exercise for 90 minutes, you'll have lost about one and a half liters. And that's about a 2% reduction in, in, in body mass. And I just want to quickly emphasize what you said also about cognitive thinking. But I think that even on a day-to-day -day basis, we well for me i get really affected where i can't think if i'm dehydrated yeah the the mechanisms for that aren't fully understood there are changes in blood flow to the brain and and, and some people believe that that might be what's causing it but the honest answer is we don't really know but we know that in all the experiments that have been done there does seem to be a, a negative effect and like you say that might be your ability to do your job at your desk or if you're an athlete it's your ability to make a decision about you know, uh, we've had Chris on whether whether he does or doesn't follow the, 
the break that's going to happen, you know, and, and there's all of those cognitive decisions that, that feed into a- athlete performance. And they're so important. Um, those kind of snap judgments that you make in sport can be the difference between finishing first and 10th, and, and um, depending on the sport that you're, you're doing, you know, um, ability to, to decide to make that run into the box to potentially score that goal that hopefully means England win the Euros. <laughs> can you tell us some more about um, studies? I mean, you, you and James can talk about them because James mentioned about studies where you blinded people to hydration is that the right phrase yeah and i'll come in here to um congratulate lewis once more on some of the work that he's done because this was a fantastic study because of course as we all know charlie when you're exercising and you're consuming fluid you're consciously aware that you're consuming fluid so therefore how much of the performance enhancing effect of drinking is down to the fact that you know that you're drinking so lewis designed a, an elegant study where he blinded people to the effects of fluid consumption. So Lewis, if you take up the story here and tell us how you did that, because it was a pretty gruesome trial, I think. Yeah. um, Thanks for your kind words, first of all, James. But I think um, when I started researching the area, and I've kind of given you a bit of a synopsis of 50, 60, 70, 80 years worth of of research, probably have not done it justice. Um, But the one main criticism I had was that in all these studies, the people knew they were drinking when they were drinking, and they knew that they weren't drinking when they weren't drinking. And in every other area that you might look at, I know you had um, Andy Jones on and, you know, Andy's done some really nice work with with nitrate and he talked you through some of that. And if those studies weren't blinded, if we didn't have a placebo so that people didn't know what was actually going on in that trial, they wouldn't get published. But that's not the case with hydration. And so we thought through the different options. How can we make people drink without them knowing they're drinking was the question that we had. Um, and, and the way we decided to do that was we used a, a feeding technique that they use in hospitals um, when they've got very ill ill patients and they need to put the food straight into their stomach. And what they do is they put a, a tube up up the nose, uh, down the esophagus, into the into the stomach, and that allows them to feed the individuals without them having to eat themselves. Um, and so we thought, oh, we'll, we'll we'll try this while they're cycling to see whether we can put fluid into their stomach without them knowing that we're putting it into their stomach. So it took us a little while. We had quite a lot of piloting. We had to do some tweaking of the methods, but we managed to do it. And the results were to us really interesting because my thought was that when we removed that overt you're drinking or you're not drinking effect, the placebo or nocebo effect, perhaps we wouldn't see that much of an effect. But we did. We almost entirely replicated most of the studies that had happened over the last 50 years. So basically it showed that it wasn't a placebo thing. So it didn't matter whether you knew you were drinking or not. Exactly. And in one of the studies we did, we had two groups. So we had one group that did this blinding method that we developed so that they didn't know they were dehydrated and they didn't know that they were well hydrated. And then we had another group. We didn't put a tube up their nose and into their stomach. We just let them drink the water or not drink the water. So they knew what was going on. And then by comparing those two groups, we were able to tease out whether there really was any kind of expectation or expectancy effect going on with with dehydration. And the results were fairly clear. The the results were we had cyclists that were between two and a half and three and a half percent dehydrated and their performance was clearly impaired um, substantially by about 10 percent. Uh, and that's a really big decline in, in in performance, actually. Yeah, and I think it's worth really hammering that home because 
We talk a lot about fueling on this podcast and don't forget to eat, don't forget to drink and use your gels and so on. What we're talking about here is having a litre of fluid per hour. And something as simple as that can cause a 10% reduction in performance. I mean, this is one of the most basic elements of, of performance nutrition, drinking fluid. And if you, if you were to say to an athlete, would you like to suffer a 10% reduction in performance? I'm pretty sure they would say, no way. Well, actually, if you don't drink this fluid, that's what's going to happen to you. This is how important this is. It just made me think that as an athlete, no matter what level you're at or somebody who just exercises and trains but goes into races, you do everything, right? But then if that's 10%, that's a huge amount that you would completely lapse on where you put all the energy elsewhere into training really hard, fueling, sleep, all those kind of things that you do before a race. I think the big one with athletes is we always talk about supplements and, and supplements are, you know, a really good way of, you know, producing a little boost in performance. But often the the, the, the changes you see in performance are nowhere near the, the level that we see with things like dehydration. Um, and and it's, a, it's a substantial area that, as James said at the beginning, is, is kind of almost forgotten about, really. So, Lewis, could you help maybe tell us how we actually should hydrate if you could give us some rules if there is particular rules of how we hydrate in performance yeah this is where we kind of circle back to the start and i think this is actually the reason why it is almost breezed over because it is not as simple as carbohydrate to say have 60 grams an hour or 30 60 grams an hour the, the the problem with water is it's such an individual thing so we could take the and we do this regularly we could take the same group of players or athletes so let's say for example a football team and we get them to do a training session we measure their sweat rate and this could be elite level football players uh, and we could have fourfold difference in how much they sweat during that session one of the players might lose 500 milliliters an hour another one could be losing two or two and a half liters an hour so huge difference and so in athlete real kind of high level athlete settings, my advice to everybody is to, to measure that individual sweat rate so that you know how much they're losing. And then you can tailor and individualize that, that hydration strategy to that individual. Now, that's a very easy thing to do. You weigh yourself before and after exercise in as little clothing as possible. And you uh, measure how much uh, fluid or food they, they consume during that session. So you then add the weight of the food or the fluid to the weight that they've lost during the session to get the the, the sweat rate. Um, that's assuming they don't go to the toilet, which if it's a 60 to 90 minute session, most people, most people won't. So you can do it very easily um, with a set of bathroom scales and a set of kitchen scales. And um, anybody that's interested in doing that can, can do it to themselves, you know, and, and learn how much they actually lose. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point, Lewis, because I know for sure many elite athletes don't regularly assess their own sweat rate, even though we've just learned how important it is for performance. So hopefully, hopefully your message will help remind people of how simple this is to measure something that can have such a well a catastrophic effect on your performance. Why do you think that is? Well, I, my own thoughts is people assume that it's not really that important and that we can all rely on thirst. And if I'm thirsty enough, then I'll just drink. But you've just told us your story about exercising in New York. Lewis has told us that when you're in the cold, you don't have the same thirst sensations. Thirst can be a good indicator, but sometimes if you leave it to thirst, it's too late. Yeah, I think if, if you really care about your performance, then 
leaving it to thirst isn't the right thing to do. And, and also the other side of the equation. So the thing we hear a lot about and um, can be a real uh, negative health uh, outcome is, is hyponatremia or water intoxication, which is drinking too much water. So this happens when people drink more fluid than they lose in sweat. So it typically happens with um, slow runners or cyclists, um, people that exercise for very long durations and, and perhaps people that are of smaller stature because it's easier to overdrink. However, if you don't know how much you're losing, you can't prevent yourself from overdrinking. So whichever end of the spectrum you're at, m- my belief is that if you really care about your performance, you should have a, a, r- a rough idea of how much you're going to lose per hour and then be trying to, to drink slightly less than that. I was just going to say about it just made me remember there was somebody I think passed away during the London Marathon several years back from that. And then recently I knew an athlete that's just done a ultra up in the Lake District. But one of the things they struggled with is they overhydrated and they were like, I know better. Like how common is that? Yeah, it, it's not hugely common in terms of people dying from it. Um, hospitalizations a little bit more common. Um, what we would call asymptomatic, so without symptoms, hyponatremia or water intoxication, it is, is a lot more prevalent. And it, it really does depend on the, the, the type of event that you're looking at. But yeah, when you start to look at marathons, um, Ironman triathlons, half Ironmans, those sort of distance races, the more ultra endurance events, then it does become more prevalent and it is more of an issue. If the event is shorter, it's a lot more difficult to um, to actually drink enough to to be able to, to to induce hyponatremia. I know we've talked about weighing, and it's not like I'm trying to like just do a side thing where I can't be bothered to weigh myself, but um, I can't always be bothered to do that. So, is there any other things we can follow and golden rules without doing the weighing yourself i mean then the only guide you've really got is thirst and if you leave it up to thirst then you, you could go one of the two ways in in my view so i think if you really care about your performance then 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 weighing yourself is is important but also let, let's dial it back a little bit i think it, it depends on who you are you know if you go to the gym like three times a week then it, it, it doesn't really matter that much you know, then you can rely on thirst and and make sure you drink a little bit more at your, your kind of post-exercise meal um, and you'll be fine. If you're if you're an endurance athlete or an athlete that's training every day for a couple of hours a day, then it should be really something that's at the forefront of your mind and, and, and making sure that you're maintaining that that hydration, that hydration status. It reminds me of something that Chris said, Lewis. And in fact, we've heard it a lot from all of the guests and the athletes that we've had, which was basically the importance of having a plan. And really, hydration is one area of nutrition where having a plan is really the golden rule, is, is have a plan. Uh, but I think the, the point that you made there was if your exercise is longer than 90 minutes, two hours and above, that's definitely a time to have a plan. If you are that recreational gym user, 30, 45, 60 minutes, this isn't something that you should be overly concerned about. But if you were going for a run, right? Say, if, I know going for a run is very generic, but say if you're going for like a 10K run, like should you be drinking water during that time? My opinion would be would be no. Um, I think for me, if, it, if, it's, if it's below 60 minutes, then probably you're, 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 you're okay. That's assuming that you're hydrated to start with. Yeah, because so many people don't drink water during the day. What about in terms of after, post-exercise, especially with somebody like 
Chris doing the Tour de France where it's repetitive days. Yeah, it's of, it's of paramount importance for him. So he would need to be making sure that over the course of the day, he's having enough. And that would include before, during and after exercise. And, and for me, after exercise is probably the most important time because that's where we're going to see the biggest deficits in water. In terms of recovery, if you've got a smallish body water deficit, so maybe, you know, two, three percent, we can probably recover that in a number of hours. Um, but in some situations with some athletes, you, you might see far greater losses of, of, of water over the course of a really hot, sweaty tour stage, for example. And, and therefore, being on it from the start and looking at that recovery over the course of that, you know, 12, 18 hours that you've got, a large amount of which is going to be spent asleep is really important. And the rule of thumb that we kind of use is, is, is replace one and a half times the water that you've lost during exercise. So if somebody's lost two liters or two kilos of water during a, a bout of exercise, and we can weigh them before and after to do this, and with, with uh, elite or professional athletes, we probably should be doing this. Um, we can then give them at least one and a half times that, maybe two, one and a half to two times that volume to try and get them back to where they started. But the important thing is that it's not just water. So whilst we're 70% water or 60% water or 50, depending on, on who we are, our water isn't just plain water. It contains salts and electrolytes. And if you don't replace those salts, the water won't stay in your body. It'll just go straight back through you. So the main one is, is um, table salt, sodium chloride. So it's ensuring that the athletes or, or, or the individual that's exercising is, is getting enough of that back in after exercise as well. James, I'd love to pick up on with you and if you can explain a little bit more about the 10% reduction in performance by dehydration or not getting the hydration strategy right. Because, I, you know, I mentioned it earlier in the podcast, we always try and find those margins. I think no matter what level you compete at but we look elsewhere rather than through hydration yeah definitely we always throw numbers out on this podcast and i think this is probably one statistic that might resonate the most out of all of the episodes that we've had if, if i was to say to an athlete i can give you something that will stop you having a reduction in performance stop you having a 10 percent reduction in your performance would you be interested i'm pretty sure they would all be interested and of course, the answer to that is water. Just stop stop becoming dehydrated because even as little as 2 to 3% dehydration can cause a 10% reduction in performance. It's phenomenal when you think of that statistic. Yeah. So how do you develop? This is always my problem. How do you develop a hydration plan? Even when, because you know what? I sometimes find that even though you know it, and I think, well, I hope people can relate to me, it's different to implementing it. Yeah, well, look, I think you were a little bit resistant about getting your bathroom scales out there and, and weighing yourself before and after I training. Know. <laughs> you know why? It's because I've never really had scales because I think I never wanted to get obsessed with with that. And from a weight perspective, I think that's why I just don't have them because I like to do it on how I feel and not be so obsessed with numbers all the time. I think that's why I'm a little bit reluctant. Yeah. So yeah, sorry about that. Well, no, look, it's it's a good point. In fact, it reminds me of, I think it was our second episode with Carl Frampton. And I talked a lot about trying to teach younger boxers about the role of hydration and just stepping on the scales before and after training 
to measure how much sweat they were losing and how much fluid they could place back in. So it's it's kind of re-educating people that when you're measuring your weight before and after training, it's not about how heavy you are or are you putting on weight or losing weight. It's getting yourself into the mindset, this is my hydration plan. So the reason why I'm weighing myself now is to optimize my individualized hydration strategy. Maybe that might help you think a little bit differently. Yeah, it's shifting that mentality. So remind us quickly about the you know, the percentages we have to look at or the numbers in terms of weighing? So effectively what you want to try and do is is drink enough fluid during exercise that you don't become more than 2 to 3% dehydrated. So as a simple rule of thumb, weigh yourself with as minimal clothing before exercise, the same clothing after exercise. You might lose, let's say, 2 kilograms or something. You then also need to think about how much fluid that you've ingested during exercise itself. And then as a result, you can then work out your total sweat rate. And then if you're becoming more than 3% dehydrated, then you're not drinking enough. And then, of course, you adjust it for your next session. And very quickly, you'll soon you'll soon work out how much fluid you need to exercise at a given running speed or a given power output in certain conditions. Okay, I'm going to try it. I'm going to try and shift that mentality and do it like that. So thank you, James. I will go and get some. Thanks again for listening to this episode. Make sure to check out Science in Sport on socials at Science in Sport. And while you're waiting for the next episode, there are plenty of articles up on scienceinsport.com that you can dive further into some of the topics that we've discussed on the podcast and explore them further. I'm off to get some scales. See you next time.